Hi everybody. I apologize for the poor quality of this recording, especially in the beginning. It's a little bit distorted, and then it gets better after about five minutes. Uh, sorry for that. I don't know what happened, but I hope you can uh, follow it anyway and enjoy the sermon. Thank you very much for listening. On Friday, April 16, 2021, just about 10 days ago, news broke that several United States Congress members were launching an American First Congress caucus in the U.S. House of Representatives. On that Friday, a flyer by the group was published. Although a spokesman for the caucus complained that the flyer was just an initial draft, he did conform the, confirm the intent of the caucus to form. The seven-page America First Caucus policy platform states, America is a nation with a border and a culture strengthened by a common respect for uniquely Anglo-Saxon political traditions. History has shown that societal trust and political unity are threatened when foreign citizens are imported en masse into a country particularly without institutional support for assimilation and an expansive welfare state to bail them out when they fail to contribute positively to the country. In the section on infrastructure, the policy platform states, the America First Caucus will work towards an infrastructure that reflects the architecture, engineering, and aesthetic value that befits the progeny of European architecture, whereby public infrastructure must be utilitarian as well as stunningly classically beautiful, befitting a world power and source of freedom. Reaction to the news of the forming of this caucus and the content of the platform was sharp, negative, and bipartisan. One House member called the platform a, and I quote, nativist dog whistle. By Saturday, it was announced that the America First Caucus was not launching after all. For a period of 24 hours, the topic of nationalism dominated our news cycle. And it's actually been a much discussed topic recently as I'm sure you all know, especially over the last few years. The Merriam-Webster definition of nationalism is loyalty and devotion to a nation, especially a sense of national consciousness exalting one nation above all others and placing primary emphasis on promotion of its culture and interests as opposed to those of other nations or supranational groups. Embedded in this definition lies the tension. How can we maintain a proper loyalty and devotion to our own nation, including gratitude for all the good it has brought to us and so many around the world, while at the same time, avoiding the extreme nationalism, cultural parochialism, or even fascism that places our own interests above and even opposed to those of other nations and groups. 
How do we recognize that we do have an identity, a culture, and certain values which we hold dear without discriminating, excluding, or even exploiting those who are different? That issue becomes even more heated when a portion of our society fears that our culture, our society, is fundamentally threatened. Last February, just two months ago, an Economist U government poll asked Americans which statement is closest to their view. The first statement is this. It's a big, beautiful world, mostly full of good people, and we must find a way to embrace each other and not, our, not allow ourselves to become isolated. Or, second choice, our lives are threatened by terrorists, criminals, and illegal immigrants, and our priority should be to protect ourselves. The results of the poll were that 70% of people who voted for Joe Biden chose a big, beautiful world. Two-thirds of those who voted for Donald Trump chose our lives are threatened. And I'm pretty sure that if they'd held this poll two years ago, those percentages would have been reversed. We're in a time of tension. We're in a time of wondering who we are. We're in a time of questioning who are we as a nation. Our history is coming into new light. And many of us at different times, sometimes depending on which political party is in power, feel that the very existence of our country is threatened. Does the book of Acts offer us any help? The book of Acts was written either just before, in the years just before the fall of Jerusalem, or in the years and perhaps decades after. The scholars are not that sure about that, and I'm not enough of a scholar to be able to give you a definitive answer. But one thing that is certain is that the book of Acts was written in a time when a great revolt was happening, or had happened, and Jerusalem was either on the verge of being destroyed or had been destroyed. The revolt of 66 to 70 AD that ended in the destruction of Jerusalem left perhaps one million Jews dead and destroyed the state of Israel until 1948, when it was founded again. So for the Jews at the time of the writing of the book of Acts, this was a time of intense pressure, intense questioning about who are we, and intense threat. That is, the threat was either happening or it had just happened, and we're looking back on the smoking ruins of Jerusalem and the bodies of those that died, probably a lot of them unburdened. Last week, we spoke of the mission that Jesus gave to his disciples to be witness to all the earth, moving out from Jerusalem to the end of the earth. And one of the major themes of Acts is how the disciples tried to be faithful to that mission, how they sometimes fell short and sometimes succeeded as the fundamental paradigm story of their world was changing. 
they were nationalists. Perhaps even extreme nationalists. And we might even say rightfully so. God had appeared to them on Mount Sinai. If you ever want to talk about a Christian religious founding of a nation, that was it. And now it was being threatened. They needed to change. The old story was over. I want to run real quickly through a couple of the stories of the book of Acts with you to just kind of show you how throughout the whole books of, book of Acts, this theme appears of, of, of reaching out to the nations with all of the tension that that involved. I start with Acts chapter 2, verse 17. Peter at, at Pentecost, Pentecost sermon, which in a week or two we'll go over in more detail. But Peter quotes the, the prophet Joel and says, in the last days, in these days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer male or female. God's spirit comes on all flesh. And then you perhaps remember the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. Today we'd call him someone who suffered under, under the disorder of sexual development. And he came all the way from Ethiopia up to Jerusalem to visit the temple. And when he got there, he wasn't allowed in the temple because he was a Gentile and because he was a eunuch. And so as he's riding back home, he reads about, he reads about this, this suffering servant in the prophet Isaiah. And Philip speaks to him about who that is and tells him the story of Jesus. And then as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. And listen very carefully to his question. What prevents me from being baptized? Because I was just at the temple and they wouldn't let me in. And Peter says, nothing. We're in a new age. The fact that you're not a Jew and the fact that you suffer from a disorder of sexual development does not mean that you don't belong to God. And you also probably remember the story of the centurion, the Roman centurion Cornelius, who sends for Peter. It's a whole story. We'll get into that in one of the future weeks. And then Peter, at the end of his, of his or, or during his, his meeting with, with, with the centurion, his household, as he sees the Holy Spirit fall on them, he opens his mouth and he says, truly, I understand that. And listen to this in, the, in this background. God shows no partiality to nobody. And I, we, we, we cannot imagine what kind of a change of circuits that was going on in his brain. His whole world was being turned upside down. Because, and this is the next passage, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles, Cornelius, the Ethiopian eunuch, the people of Samaria, had, re had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, the nationalists, criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. How could you do that? You're destroying 
our culture, our people, our special status as God's chosen. See the tension there? And then the Apostle Paul, who was a Jew, of course, and then converted to Christianity and, and formed in the book of, forms in the book of Acts this bridge between the Jewish and the Gentile world when it comes to proclaiming Christ. He stands in the middle of Athens, this, 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 Roman, this Greek city filled with its Roman and Greek philosophies. And he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, the one God, being Lord of heaven and earth, Lord of everything, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He gives to whom? All mankind. There's no distinction in that. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. From one man, every nation. There are no distinctions. Having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And again, it's hard for us to imagine what a circuit-blowing statement that was. The world of the Jewish nationalists was being turned upside down. And this I had never noticed before, but the very last words of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, right before the conclusion was just this little historical statement about Paul being in prison. Paul has met with Jewish leaders in Rome has told them that Jesus is king and that because Jesus is king, every nation is now included. And the Jews disagreed with him and they went away, at least some of them did, not all of them, but many of them disagreed with him so vehemently that they left him. And this is how Paul ends the book of Acts. He quotes Isaiah. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. Why was it dull? They didn't have this expanded vision. Their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal him. Therefore, let it be known to you. These are the last words of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts to the Jews who were walking out of his house. Let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Your nationalism story is over. In his book on Acts, Willie James Jennings has a little aside, a little section of about two and a half pages. And it's called Christians, Jews, and Nationalism. And I'd like to read a few quotes 
from that section for you. We normally, in our circles, do not learn to read the Bible to learn what it tells us about nationalism. In fact, we were mostly taught, and most of us believe, that the Bible sanctions our way of life and sanctions our nationalism. Jennings questions that. I'd like you to hear his words, and I give them to you for consideration. If you would like to keep them, you could perhaps take a screenshot if that's available to you. If you would like them, just send me an email or a text and I will email them to you. And if you want the whole two and a half pages that he's written, I'll send that to you too. Just let me know. Quote number one. There's some shocking stuff in here. Nationalism always engenders zero-sum calculations where we win by controlling our borders and or controlling our identities, or we lose by being overrun with aliens who confuse our identities and resist assimilation. Nationalist vision is weakness and fear masquerading as strength and courage. Should disciples of Jesus love their nation, the one they claim and are claimed by? That's the wrong question. The question we are compelled to ask and answer by our lives is, how might we show the love of God for all peoples, a love that cannot be contained by any nation, a love that slices through borders and boundaries and reaches into every people group, every clan, every tribe, and every family? Point number two. We must starve all who would offer us a God-bound-to-us nationalism of their pathos and drama, turning our attention away from stories of heroic sacrifice, ingenious founders, eternal nationalistic or business principles or schemas for prosperity. To do so is not an act of disrespect or denial of their significance for a nation. It means that we acknowledge that our desire for life together flows from another source. And any other claim to be that source can only gain from us an ironic smile that hides serious laughter, that anyone could believe that their nation could actually be a comprehensive and enduring reality for a life together that gives life. That's why... The book of Acts is a direct, unequivocal assault on nationalism in all its forms. And quote number three. God, from the very beginning of Acts, of the Acts drama, will not share holy desire with any nationalistic longing that draws borders and boundaries. The Holy Spirit will break open what we want closed and shatter our strategies of protectionism for the sake of a loving God who will give back to us precisely what we cannot hold on to. He'll give back to us precisely what we cannot hold on to with our own efforts and power. The continuities of our stories, our legacies, our hopes, and our dreams for a good future and a thriving life. Nationalism gives energy to the false belief 
that only by its own single efforts can a people sustain its story, its hope, and its life. Such belief is unbelief for a Christian because we know that God offers a new way found in a new life, a joining that brings stories, hopes, and life in a shared work of knowing, remembering, and testifying. I realize there's a lot in all those three quotes. I hope you get the point. When we seek our life in our nation, whichever nation it is, and our values, and our boundaries, and our way of life, and our culture, we will lose it. He calls it unbelief. Acts drives us out from that nationalism. Even when, that, even when our nation is threatened, it drives us out into the world. What are some practical things that we can do in the time in which we find ourselves right now? Very quickly, just a couple things. Number one, certainly be grateful for the history, the achievements, the things we've accomplished the ways in which we and our culture and our nation have been of service to many and to the world for many decades, if not centuries. We have the right, the responsibility, the joy of being grateful for the land in which God has placed us and all of the benefits that we have. We are in the whole history of the world, among the top of the top of the top of the top in terms of freedom, in terms of possibilities, in terms of wealth, in terms of comfort, in terms of care, in terms of all the things that we can set our mind, hands and minds to do. And we rejoice in that. But we also accept critique We take it seriously. We learn about the darker side of our history. One of the things that struck me about the book of Acts, and I had never thought about this before, is that almost every sermon that's preached to Jews in the book of Acts is a devastating critique of their history. I don't know if you've noticed that. You go through them, you'll find it. Stephen, the martyr, while he's being stoned, no, not while he's being stoned, before he's being stoned, but in his speech that caused him to be stoned, closed it off by saying this, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Now, that's a pretty hefty criticism. Which of the prophets did your fathers did not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels, but did not keep it. That's the criticism of the book of Acts against the Jewish Old Testament culture. And it runs all through the book, even to those very last words. So accept that critique. Don't close your mind to it. 
There's plenty to be critical about. There, we, our, our culture has plenty of dark sides going, going way back in, in Western culture, not even just American, but going way back in history. We who've been on the privileged side of our history must somehow learn to bear the distrust, anger, and sorrow of those who have been marginalized. Somehow we need to, as Jesus did, be willing and able to lay down our defenses. You probably are as sick as I am of the talk about political correctness. But let me tell you something. Number one, it sometimes goes off the rails. Absolutely. But political correctness is the search to listen to the voice of someone who's saying, I have not been heard. You know, for example, right now, we no longer use the term handicapped. Because it depersonalizes. The word handicapped originated after the Civil War, when people who are wounded by the war had to have caps in their hands so that they could beg. And I grew up, speaking of handicapped people, and I wasn't, I wasn't, I'm not guilty of that in the sense that I sinned against anybody. I, maybe I did, but that's not my point. My point is by using that term, you depersonalize someone. So now we speak of a person with a disability. We speak of a person who is blind. We speak of a person of color because we want to acknowledge their personhood. And as you hear all the articles and listen to read all the articles and listen to all the talk complaining about political correctness, perhaps we might want to think, wait a minute, the attempt at political correctness, I don't even know if that's the right term, is designed to give personhood back to people who are marginalized. So listen. Martin Luther King said, A riot in the final analysis is the language of the unheard. And you can can rail against any violence of a riot that destroys property or people's lives. Absolutely, that is wrong. But as you do that, do not look over, do not ignore the voice that's behind that. There are people who are unheard. Are we going to listen to them? Then the last thing is to work to change things on every level, from your own personal life, from your prayers, from how you give your money, from how you spend your time, to your involvement with society as God gives opportunity. How could the nationalism of those early disciples be transformed? How can our nationalism, to the extent that we have it, 
and to the extent that it damages other people, how can that be transformed? Listen to Peter on Pentecost Day as he concluded his sermon. Let all the house of Israel, see that? National. I mean, once you, once you get this theme in your head, it is all, like all over the place. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. The Jewish and the Greek or Roman words, both of those words for king. This Jesus, whom what? And here's the criticism. You crucified. Christ is king over all, over all places and over every person, culture, family, nation, tribe. And that's the grand truth that was needed to change the nationalism of Peter and Paul into service to the marginalized. And that's the grand truth that's needed to change whatever nationalism we have into this grand truth that reaches out with this good news to the marginalized and people that we would normally not have much to do with. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. This is not just like spiritual religious language. This is, this is politics. This is who we are as a culture. This is a culture that's being threatened. They were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent. Change your way of thinking. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins both personal and national. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You'll receive this new way of looking and thinking. For the promise is for you and for your children. And then see what comes next. For all or far off. Everyone. The Lord God. There's no more, there's no more walls, there's no more distinctions. I'd like to close with a quote by Beth Moore. Beth Moore is a um, a uh, well-known um, Bible teacher. She's been well known around our country for several decades. Um, has Bible studies, runs Bible studies, runs conferences, very, very solid evangelical Christian person. And on Instagram this week, she put the following, and I would like to leave it for you today as a challenge to you. For yourself personally, but also to think about if you're a parent of children or a grandparent of grandchildren or in any way are involved with helping to model and disciple the younger generation. Because this is our task. Those of us that are baby boomers and older are leaving the scene. Our world is inevitably changing. The demographics in this country are changing without, where there's nothing we can do to stop it. 
the old story is over. Just like it was in those years around the fall of Jerusalem. It's over. And it had its good parts and it had its terrible parts. What's the new story going to look like? And we have a chance because we've gotten this revelation from God in the book of Acts to put words to and hands and feet to this new story. And this is the way Beth Moore says it. And I leave you with this. I am praying for a courageous generation of Jesus followers to rise up. A generation of scripture-immersed, spirit-led, and infused believers whose politics and policies are informed by the gospel instead of their gospel. And by gospel, you need to think Jesus is Lord, being informed by their politics. A generation that refuses to be married to any political party or politician. A generation informed enough to be pro-all life, unborn, born, young, old, brown, black, or white. It's time for a new generation willing to break out of the old mold, recognizing the impact of Christ's gospel regarding matters of justice and freedom from oppression and protection for all who are vulnerable. The capitals are hers. A generation that recognizes Christ's undeniable draw to the margins. But if this is you, I warn you in advance, you will, not, you will risk losing the approval of your mentors. But make no mistake, you are not called to follow your mentors. You are called to follow Jesus. Soak yourself in the Gospels. Know Christ. Follow Christ. Imitate Christ. And when you one day see his face, he will be able to say of you, that was a brave one right there. Amen.